Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies. Isn't that so? The Horror Under Penmire by Adrian Cole. Penmire is strewn across the edge of one of the bleakest stretches of Cornish moorland in existence. Though the windswept houses are exposed constantly to the buffets of Atlantic gales, the withdrawn inhabitants live their lives in sheltered seclusion rarely venturing beyond the proximities of their isolated haven. There are few trees in Penmire, or indeed for miles around on this spectral, misted countryside. The hard outcrops of granite permit only the barest growths of gorse and heather. Any who chance to pass this way would wonder how it is that the villagers live. Yet it has been thus for years without number, in its long, unchronicled history, Penmire has tenanted farmers, miners, even smugglers from the secret coves of the not-too-distant coasts, where even today the caves and blowholes shelter hidden secrets. There have always been people here in Penmire, perhaps from the dawn of man. Sometimes it is whispered abroad on shadowed evenings that men worshipped at strange altars in the marshes behind the village, and some folks hold that Arthur took refuge here at one time, pursued across the moors by some hideous foe. Only the tours of frowning granite know how long Penmire has stood, but the magic of distant ages still hangs wraith-like over the quaint dwellings, suggesting primal antiquity and forgotten knowledge. What scenes of ancient savagery did the imperturbable moon gaze down upon through ragged, storm-rent clouds? What dark arts were practised? What neolithic sounds mingled with the roaring winds to be torn and hurled across miles of barren wasteland? Now the village seems to slumber, oblivious to the outside world, contemplating, perhaps, its fabled past. Roy Baxter had long been fascinated by the lure of mystic Penmire. He was a hard-working engineer from Bristol, or up-country, as the locals termed it, but his hobby was this deep interest in folklore and mythology. It was a hobby which led him all over England, pottering around on ancient sites and browsing through musty, faded records. He was on holiday now, 
driving fairly aimlessly through the enchanting hamlets of Cornwall, the county that perhaps drew him most. But it was here in the tiny pubs that he first heard muted comments about Penmire. It was just the sort of guarded half-secret that he looked for, but no one was anxious to locate the place for him. His curiosity was fully aroused. He often found the local people non-committal concerning the old legends, despite their talkative natures. But an unnatural barrier of silence would always clamp down the moment he tried to bring Penmire into the conversation. In one little pub he saw a group of farmers down pints and fairly rush out into the night, though he may have imagined their rapid exit. Baxter's fertile imagination worked further overtime when he tried to pinpoint Penmire on a map. All his efforts failed. There simply weren't any records of the place anywhere on ordnance survey maps or local records. Despite this disappointment, Baxter was thrilled. He was certain that the village existed and determined all the more to find it. Acting on the assumption, from what little he had heard, that Penmire was somewhere on the central moorlands, he tried to cover as much of that foreboding landscape as he could. But it was a fruitless task. Thick fingers of fog obscured the hidden paths and narrow roadways that could have led him there. Infuriated, he came off the moors and drove into Bodmin, where he checked into a small hotel. That evening he came down the creaking stairs, ducking under a thick beam, and came into the foyer. "'May I use the phone?' he asked, his dumpy, rose-cheeked hostess. She was a cheerful soul, ample-bosomed and bouncy, typical of the loquacious landlady. "'Course you can, Mr. Baxter,' she chirped in a high voice, elongating her R's in the curious Cornish fashion. "'Fine. I want to call London, actually.' "'Oh, that's all right. Business, I suppose.' Mrs. Harcourt was all smiles. She was already imagining Baxter to be a big-time executive, or possibly a TV producer. Her gossip circles would shortly be afire with the news. Yes, Baxter grinned, thinking it would all go on the bill anyway. Oh, uh, by the way, he added, trying to sound casual, mm, I noticed a, a turning on the moor for a place called, um, what was it? Ah, Penmire. Yes, that was it, Penmire. It seems I've heard of it in local customs and the like. Only um, I'm rather keen on that sort of thing. Uh, do you know the place at all? He had lied about that turn-off, but he wanted to see if Mrs. Harcourt would deny all knowledge of Penmire. Her mouth was slightly open, as though he had taken her by surprise. She began idly flicking through her guest book, and Baxter knew he had found another peculiar link in the mysterious armour of that moorland village. "'Well, I have heard of it, Mr. Baxter, but I can't say, as I know where tis. I expect you'd find out in the bar tonight, though. We do have some of the local landowners in here sometimes, but if tis on the moors, I, I'd keep away if I were you, Mr. Baxter. It's awful bleak up there, especially with the mist.' I see. Well, uh, thanks anyway, uh, Mrs. Harcourt. Uh, perhaps you're right. That was all he'd get out of her. So, the place did exist. You're welcome, she returned, but her air of pleasantness had dissipated. Baxter found the phone tucked away in a convenient niche, and after a series of brief interchanges, eventually got through to a London number. Hello, Phil. Uh, this is Roy. 
There was a pause before he heard the voice of his lifelong friend. Hello there, long time no see. What have you been doing with yourself? Uh, are you at home? Philip Dayton's voice was warm, firm, painting a picture of a strong character. No, I'm in Cornwall, actually. Ah, the legend-haunted Southwest, Dayton chuckled. He was more than familiar with his friend's obsession with mythology. Himself an expert in the field, he guessed the reason for this call at once. Roy was onto something. Dayton grinned to himself as he thought of some of the ridiculous finds his pal had unearthed in the last few years. Yes, said Baxter, I've got a few weeks off to pursue my true calling as usual. Very nice. And uh, what have you dug up from the pixie-infested tin mines this time? Well, uh, nothing as yet, but I've come across an interesting case. Oh? Dayton was intrigued by his friend's tone, for, despite Baxter's ability to stumble across events of absolutely no importance whatsoever, he did occasionally find something interesting. Ever heard of Penmire? Penmire, no, can't place it offhand. It's a small village on Bodmin Moor, but I don't know where. If you can't direct me to it, no one can. Baxter sounded urgent. He knew Philip Dayton's knowledge of legend and folklore was extensive. Dayton had written several authoritative books on the subject, and had read as much material as he could find. Ah, Penmire, it, it does ring the faintest of bells. Vaguely connected with Arthur, and with a history of druidic dabblings to boot. Yes, I know of it, though I can't tell you the gory details until I've dredged them up. Well, well it's a start, exclaimed Baxter. Where the blue blazes is the place? That I don't know. In fact, I think you're in a blind alley, old sport. As far as I remember, the place is only legendary anyway, a bit like the evasive Camelot. Oh, no, Baxter groaned. Don't tell me it doesn't exist. I I'm not sure. I'm not too well up in these channels. Tell you what, though. Ah, uh, where are you exactly? Baxter gave his address and his friend took it down. Bodmin, eh? Right, you hang on down there and perhaps have a scout round for our hidden penmire. In the meantime, I'll see what I can find out about it at this end. Then I might just drive down and join you. Oh, you needn't do that, Phil, thanks all the same. I don't want to drag you off on a wild goose chase. There was a laugh from the other end of the line. Nonsense, I'm hooked. Matter of fact, I'm at a loose end at the moment. I've just finished a series of university lectures, and I had thought about going up to the Yorkshire Moors for a spot of research, uh, uh, witches and all that. But I must admit, Bodmin Moor sounds just as enterprising. Working on a new book? Yep. I haven't done a damn thing yet, though. So your little find might furnish me with a few new titbits. I could do with a break, and I haven't drunk a few jars with you for some time. Great. In that case, I'll stick around. When will you be here? Oh, say, three days? I shall be able to ferret something out by then. Right. Uh, give my love to Annie and the kids. Baxter rang off. Philip Dayton scratched his head irritably and sipped his scotch his thoughts running back once more to the events of the last few days. Where the hell was Roy? Five days ago he'd phoned him, enthusing about Penmire and its superstitious connotations. Two days ago he, Dayton, had arrived here in Bodmin with enough information to help find the place, but Roy was nowhere to be found. That just wasn't like him. Dayton now sat in the cramped bar of his friend's hotel, where he too had checked in. No one had been able to help. 
Mrs. Harcott had seen Roy leave shortly after phoning him, and his few things were still in his room. She hadn't seen him since. Dayton had made several abortive attempts to eke information out of the people who used the bar, but he got the same shrugs from all of them. Hardly anyone had seen him anyway, as he'd left the hotel shortly after checking in. Dayton got a little sleep that night. He began to get progressively more worried. His eyes turned again and again to the monolith on the hill above Bodmin, which stood out clearly against the purple skies. He turned this way and that in a restless half-slumber, while the brass pixies on the mantelpiece seemed to contort themselves into weird shapes. In the early hours of the morning, Dayton settled on a plan of action. He couldn't hang around lamely any longer. Roy must have found Penmire, otherwise he would have been back. After a hurried breakfast, Dayton drove up onto Bodmin Moor and began searching the hedgeless side roads and lesser tracks, from time to time consulting a rough map he had improvised in the records section of a London library. He pulled up at the base of a chain of huge jutting tors crowned with bare outcrops of wind-swept rock. According to his information, Penmire should be on the other side. There was an old road somewhere, but the chances were that it would be overgrown and hard to find. Dayton got out, locking the car, and began the steep climb, his feet sinking slightly into the moss that dotted these lowest slopes. It was a gorgeous day. For once the sky was free of clouds and the sun beat down, giving the usually foreboding landscape a more welcoming quality. It was July, typically hot and windless. He could hear the skylarks twittering incessantly, though they were too high up to be seen against the glare. As he climbed he felt fresh and alive, at one with the land. His doubts about Roy dispersed in the joy of the climb. As he reached the rock sentinels atop the tor, Dayton let out a deep sigh, mopped his brow and looked back at the clear vista below him. Far off he saw the sun glinting on the metal of speeding cars as they raced down the main road. You're missing it all, he thought. After a moment he turned and clambered through the dark rocks which were splotched here and there with thin patches of lichen. Once he'd crossed the top of the tor, he looked down with a satisfied grunt at the straggling houses below. Unless I miss my guess, that'll be Penmire. Picturesque little spot, he mused. A sparkling stream ran out of the distant village, twisting its way into the limits of his vision, where a dark mass of trees formed a wood at the edge of the moors. Before Penmire lay the marshes, a flattish area peppered with bogs and mires, which the old records had mentioned, and behind them rose a series of rugged tors leading off hazily into the heart of the moorland. Dayton was about to start the descent when he heard muffled voices somewhere behind him. At least, he thought, they had come from behind him. He turned, half expecting to see a basking courting couple, but his gaze encountered only the blank rocks. Damn fool, he said to himself. On a day like this, voices carry a long way. He took off his jacket, slung it unceremoniously over his shoulder, and began to climb down into the broad valley. He hadn't noticed it, but the skylarks were no longer audible. Looking down on Penmar, he could see that it was oddly lifeless, as though it had been long abandoned. That was strange. 
because according to Dayton's information it should still be populated. Still, he was some way off yet, though he couldn't see any vehicles or telephone wires. To all intents and purposes, the place was dead. As he pressed on, expecting to see at least a sheep or two, Dayton was suddenly aware of the silence, broken only by his passage through the tufts of reed. He stood still and realised just how absurdly quiet it was. He was reminded of Alice stepping through the looking-glass. So, where is the white rabbit? He felt eyes on him too, though he had to suppress a chuckle at his own nerves. Perhaps the villagers had seen him approach. In a place as remote as this they wouldn't appreciate strangers, but he should have been able to hear the birds or at least the teeming insect life. The grasshoppers and crickets usually made a terrific din. Behind him, towering up into the sunlight, the rocks seemed to leer down mockingly. Dayton shrugged and moved on. Roy's car should be around here somewhere, he told himself. He'd feel a lot easier when he saw it. He heard the faintest suggestions of voices again and cursed himself. He put it down to exertion. After all, he was not a young man. Penmire was still some way off when he noticed a sudden chill in the air. The psychical research boys would love this place. Then he laughed inwardly as he saw the reason for the drop in temperature. Coming across the brow of a nearby tor was a thick mist, lapping over the rocks and overspilling into the valley. These moor mists can be frightening to those who don't know them. They appear from almost nowhere and literally descend like blankets in a matter of minutes. Dayton had tramped Dartmoor to the east and knew how quickly he would be enveloped by these swirling, silent tendrils. He speeded up his descent, certain now that he could hear those indefinable voices. It was uncanny, made even more so by this thickening mist. The stuff seemed to tremble with animation as it reached out and engulfed him. Dayton calculated that he had about a mile to go. He stumbled on, muttering obscenities through the gathering coils. There then burst on his ears a chorus of sounds that stopped him dead in his tracks. He was in the heart of the mist when, as if at a given signal, thousands of frogs burst into voice, the sound of their deep croaking coming from all around the valley. Dayton reflected that it was the most chilling sound he had ever heard. He tried to see into the mist, but out of all those countless frogs he could see none. He was scared, no use in pretending otherwise, but he smiled grimly. The mist had probably alarmed them. Sitting at home in an armchair was one thing, but when you were alone in this lot it was a different matter. Far off he heard a splashing vaguely over the cacophony of frogs. That would be the stream, etching its way through the boulders, but this was too rhythmic for a stream, more as though someone was sloshing their way through water or mud. An inhabitant at last. Dayton thought of shouting, but the sound appeared to recede, and for some unaccountable reason he thought it had gone underground. But so many odd things had occurred already that he cursed himself and carried on. Abruptly the frogs were silent, and the abysmal silence supplanted their terrible racket. Dayton barked his shins more than once, now only vaguely certain of the direction in which Penmire lay. 
His progress had become far more difficult, for he had to skirt sinking clods of peat and slime-covered pools of mire. He was sweating profusely, his face damp with mist. Where was that blasted village? He leant on a huge granite slab and wheezed, Roy, my son, head shall roll for this. The events of the next few seconds were a total shock to him, and concrete proof that something was very much amiss with this weird valley. The rock on which he was leaning seemed to twitch, as the flank of a horse twitches when irritated by a fly. Dayton drew back in horrified alarm, half expecting something dark and malign to rear up out of the mire. Then the earth heaved, and he pitched forward into the soaking reeds. This is ridiculous, he kept saying over and over again, but the ground rippled as though it were water, and Dayton bit off a scream. It must be an island of turf, he told himself desperately, for anything else will be far too alien to accept. He struggled to his feet and ran, though it was like standing in a small boat. He stumbled again before the movement stopped, then rushed on as far as the reeds and hidden rocks would allow. This time he could definitely hear voices, though they seemed as much inside of him as out in those sentient mists. The voices laughed, chuckling insanely at his plight, voices which he knew instinctively were not human. The mist was now as thick as the fogs that he knew in London. God, how far away all that was! On and on he wandered, his shins bruised and bleeding from innumerable bumps on the hard granite that lay obscured everywhere he turned. A rumbling like distant thunder caught his attention, coming from the marsh, and again it seemed to come from under the earth. But that was unthinkable. Dayton's progress had slowed right down, his breath coming in laboured gasps. The mist was playing tricks, though the sound had receded. Now all he could hear was the drip, drip of moisture on the reeds, faint though that sound was. Something Dark and suggestive loomed up ahead, and he fell to his knees, heart pounding like a locomotive. God, this is it! But it was only a house. He had reached the sanctuary of Penmire at last. Painfully he limped between two houses, their eaves overhanging the path, their windows dark and shadowed. As he came into the street, he still had no idea where to start looking for Roy, assuming he was here. It was a relief to get off the marsh. Something stirred in the mist, and he recoiled in surprise. The skulking shape of a cat slunk past, eyes blazing with green hate, eyes that never left his own. Where is everyone? Still, the dense mist showed no signs of lifting. Dayton stumbled on up the badly kept street, hands thrust deep in his pockets, numb with the cold, jacket pulled tight around him. He was conscious now of other cat-like shapes padding around the edge of his vision, but they were always obscured by mist. At last he saw a dim light, and coming upon what appeared to be an old inn, he pushed the thick wooden door and went inside. Hostile eyes regarded him from at least five places as he closed the door. A bar ran the length of the far wall, while several tables were placed here and there around the little room. 
The walls were fitted with panelled cubicles, and nailed to the roof beams were brass horse accoutrements, though Dayton couldn't see any horseshoes. He wasn't surprised. An old woman sat at one of the tables, arms resting on a gnarled stick, a battered bag on the floor beside her slippered feet. Two weather-beaten men sat in one of the chipped cubicles in the corner, smoking and playing cards. The barman, a huge shirt-sleeved character with a pink freckled face and thinning sandy hair, was talking to what appeared to be a local labourer. There was thick mud on his boots. The barman scowled at Dayton as he came forward. "'We aren't open yet,' he said gruffly in a very strong accent. Dayton noticed a grubby collie lying at the labourer's feet, regarding him disdainfully. Uh, that, "'That's all right, only uh, I lost my way in this ruddy mist. Uh, it, it's a bit marshy out there, and I don't fancy trying to find my way back to the car uh, until the mist lifts.' The old lady regarded him through her spectacles, but never blinked. She might have been carved from granite for all she moved. No one spoke. Dayton edged nearer the bar, wary of the dog. Its owner had turned to inspect him, his gaze as scathing as his animals. The card players had stopped. "'I don't suppose you've a phone?' "'No, there ain't no phone in Penmire,' returned the barman, taking a rag and wiping down the bar slowly and methodically. "'Oh, well, I'm in a bit of a mess. Uh, is there anywhere I can clean up?' The eyes stared questioningly. Christ, thought Dayton, what are they, zombies? From outside, B.E., muttered the old girl beside him. Yes, that's right, uh, London. I'm, uh, I'm looking for a friend of mine. I believe he's staying in Penmire. The woman nodded vaguely. I thought he was from outside. Ash, Mrs. Denick, muttered the barman. I think you're mistaken, sir. No one don't come to stay in Penmire. Oh, but my friend expressly stated that he would be here. Dayton watched the thick pipe smoke curling up into the beams from the corner. No, I don't think so. No one has come. Only you. Dayton shifted his gaze to the card players. They sat as though paralysed. What if Roy hadn't come here? In the meantime, have you a gent's handy? I must try and clean up a bit. Through there, grunted the barman reluctantly, pointing to a side door. Dayton nodded his thanks and went through. He found a tiny toilet and closed the flaking door behind him. There was an overpowering smell of fish exuding from the drain. Now what? he asked himself as he cleaned himself up in the battered sink. I was better off in the ruddy marsh. He returned to the bar to find it empty, save for the inhospitable barman who tried his damnness to ignore him. You get this mist often? Uh Dayton decided this was an affirmative. Like pea soup, eh? he grinned, but it had no effect. Now I know how lepers used to feel, he mused. Any chance of me buying a bite to eat? Don't serve meals, sir. There's a shop down the street. Mm, I'll hang on here till the mist lifts, I think. You, you don't mind? You hadn't better, he added to himself. Maybe down for a week. Often stops longer in the warm weather. My advice is to take the road off the moor, sir. You'll be all right. Folks in Penmire is uh, wary of strangers. The barman was fiddling about with glasses and glimpsing at a paper, anything to avoid being drawn into conversation. So I noticed. Uh, you're sure about that friend of mine? Positive. Okay, 
Clayton went over to one of the booths and sat down, pretending to study a map that he carried. The barman eyed him coldly and began cleaning glasses again. Outside, everything remained silent. Dayton had been seated for only a short time when he noticed a book of some description poking up from the back of the seat opposite. Gently he reached over, careful not to be seen by the barman, who had for a moment turned to his shelves, and picked it up. It was a paperback entitled Myths and Folklore of the Southwest. That clinched it. It must be Roy's. Dayton flicked through the book and found several underlined passages and notations all in pencil and instantly recognisable as Roy's handwriting. He found a section on druidic practices and certain other primitive rites said to have been handed down from earlier periods. The name Arthur cropped up here and there, along with the usual references to Tintagel. Then Dayton found a very brief passage on Penmire, a very old settlement, believed to be the one-time centre of a very primitive culture centred around the worship of the sea. Fantastic theory that the earliest inhabitants were settlers from the sinking of Atlantis seems a rather fanciful notion, possibly the survivors from Lioness or counterpart. Penciled beside the passage was the word Dagon. "'I'm closing now,' boomed a voice above him, and Dayton slammed the book shut with a start. "'Oh, oh, oh, really? Um, I'll be off, then. Always carry some light reading matter, you know.' "'He knows,' Dayton thought. "'What are these people hiding?' He forced a grin, reflecting that it was still relatively early. "'Keep on the road, sir. One step off, and you're likely to sink for good into the marshes.' Dayton rose, pocketing the book. Uh-huh, I expect it'll brighten up soon. Sorry to be a nuisance. He left as casually as he could, stepping once more into the dank, oppressive mist. The stench of fish came even more strongly to his nostrils now. Still, he'd resigned himself to expect anything in this eerie place, even pixies. But he was being observed. He knew at once, and far more intensely than before. Then he saw the glowing, baleful eyes of the cats, never for a moment averting their gaze. Dayton watched them as he started down the street, having decided to stop at the shop. To his horror, he saw that there were now a number of dogs in the mist, all plodding along quietly, as though waiting the command to attack. This was fast becoming a nightmare. What had Roy meant by the penciled Dagon? Dayton recognised the name as that of a mythical sea-dwelling creature, though, as far as he knew, it had only appeared in fiction. Faintly defined houses slipped past as he hastily moved on, conscious now of several cats and dogs lurking at his heels, like a hungry pack. A flapping from above made him duck to see a crow disappear into the gloom. Another house appeared ahead, but before he had taken another step, he saw three pairs of eyes glowing in front of him. What are they? Wolves? He felt panic gripping him. They're trying to surround me. Dayton abruptly turned to his left and sprinted between the houses, anywhere to escape the lurking shadows. A bark behind him told him they were giving chase. He came to the edge of the marsh, and for a moment he almost forgot the pursuit. He had found concrete proof that Roy had come to Penmire. One wheel and part of the front bumper of his Rover 2000 were sticking up out of the mire. 
Dayton had no time to speculate. Something heavy crashed into the back of his head, and he plummeted into a bottomless well of oblivion. Dayton came round with a splitting headache. His arms felt as though they were being torn from their sockets, and his mouth was horribly dry. Total darkness enveloped him. His surroundings swam in a blur as he tried to focus on something tangible. Vague thoughts on what had happened trickled back to him, but he was in no condition to struggle. The first sound he heard was the plop, plop, plop of water somewhere near his head. He tried to move, only to find that he was chained up back to a damp wall somewhere in a cellar or cave. Chained? His mind raced as he tugged hopelessly in the chill earthy air. There were scurrying sounds around his feet in response to his movements. He kicked out wildly, his toe digging into a number of squealing furry bodies. The place was alive with rats, and as they ran hither and thither the air became permeated with the now familiar stink of rotting fish. Phil! hissed a voice nearby, where more chains rattled in the acrid blackness. Roy, is that you? Dayton could not believe his ears. Pray so, old pal. I was hoping you wouldn't get to find me. What the devil's going on in this village? I never encountered anything like it in all my travels. I dread to think, Baxter sounded very tired. The rudeness of the local goons I can stomach, but this is going too damn far. Guess so. But save your strength, Phil. You'll probably need it. I found a book of yours at the inn. I notice you've penciled in a few notes. Have you any ideas on what's happening? Why the chains, for God's sake? Rivulets of sweat trickled down Dayton's face despite the cold. His arms ached intolerably. Something very old and very evil has got Penmar in its grip, Phil. Whether they practice satanic rites or what, I don't know. But I've been shackled up here for bloody ages. I don't know for how long. I can't feel my arms. Some of the things I've heard... God, it's incredible, Baxter gasped with the effort. Where exactly are we? Under the chapel, you may have noticed it, sort of crypt. Judging by some of the chanting that goes on up there, he broke off. What have you done for food? You must have been here for several days. Oh, they keep me alive. Christ knows why, but they feed me. A robed figure in black appears now and again. It would be laughably melodramatic if it wasn't for the fact that I'm scared. Really scared, Phil. We're in a hell of a situation. Dayton admired his friend's strength of character. A lesser man would have cracked up in here. Even he might. It's insane, he growled. I know about witchcraft and most of its various cults, but I can't believe these people would do us any serious harm. It must be some sort of hoax, a festival. Do you think? Dayton's nerves were rapidly fraying. He had to keep talking. The pain's real enough. They'd never get away with it. Oh, no? What's to stop the police finding us in the mire, or not finding us in the mire? No one's safe on these moors. It's one of the bleakest parts of England. We may as well be on Mars. Cheerful bugger. They were silent for a moment. The humour soon vanished. Well, grunted Dayton at length, what do we do? God knows, we can't break these chains. We just wait. So they waited, their minds uselessly trying to fathom a way to escape. 
but there was absolutely none. The seconds slipped into minutes, marked by the ever-dripping wet walls, and the minutes turned slowly into hours. There was only the pain and discomfort as the scampering rats kept vigil over the two incarcerated men. At last they heard sounds above them, feet shuffling to and fro in the chapel. Dayton, who had slipped to his knees, cocked an ear. Faintly came the strains of weird, ethereal music, like fluted pipes drifting out from the old walls into the night. Roy, are you awake? There was a grunt. What's that noise? It's them again. It happens every now and then. Nights, I suppose. Another ritual. You okay? Uh, I'll do. You know that passage I marked in the book? Did you see my reference to Dagon? Yes, it's in my pocket. Well, uh, there could be something in it. It's a crazy notion, but now and again I I've heard the name Dagon mentioned in the chanting. You listen for it once they start. One time I thought I heard something out in the marsh, like a huge wave breaking. Yes, I know it sounds bloody daft, but there was something. Maybe not so daft, Roy. I came here across that marsh, and some of the things I heard were pretty odd. Such as? People splashing about, and frogs. God, I never heard so many. All at once they started up in unison. They fell silent again. Baxter broke the lull with a forced snort. <sighs> we're probably behaving like kids. I know we're in a right mess, but the moor is spooky. There are probably the usual scientific explanations for it all. Perhaps. But I like a good explanation for this. Dayton rattled his chains. I'll create bloody hell when I get back to civilization. Quite a sec. They both listened anew to the strange noises from above, a deep, Somehow obscene chanting had begun, the words totally indecipherable, utterly alien. There they go again. They'll go on for hours, working themselves up into a frenzy. Just when you think it'll die down, they start up again. Again, this is all new to me. I wish I had a tape recorder. I'd settle for a wrench, Baxter replied, but neither of them laughed. All that night... The blasphemous sound swelled until, in the early hours of the morning, it reached a peak. There were sounds from around the prisoners, sounds of slopping footsteps, though nothing could be seen in the dark. The fish odour was overpowering. The climax of the terrible dirge above came in a resounding thunderclap which shook the very foundations of the chapel. Its echoes rolled away into the distance. Roy, that sound... It's going away beneath us, I'm sure of it. Eh? Roy Baxter was exhausted, very drowsy, having only partly registered the boom. He couldn't take much more of this. Have you heard anything underground? persisted Dayton. Underground? No, uh, only from up there, Baxter said sleepily. Dayton was thinking of the marsh and the rippling motion that he had seen. Probably an echo? Baxter suggested. There are lots of caves under the uh, village. Caves? Um, well, tunnels. I saw a few when they dragged me here. All man-made, though. But what about the mire? Caves running under that would be geologically impossible. Uh, I don't know. They seem to avoid that, Baxter yawned. I expect they all go straight down. Curious. Somehow the two men lapsed into fitful sleep. Time had ceased to exist for them in this rancid pit.
They languished for three days, three days of gruelling anguish which were only broken by the brief appearance of a robed, half-glimpsed figure who fed them. After that, the villagers came for their prisoners. Above the cellar, the voices had begun chanting again in mournful unison. From out of the ether came whispered sounds of demonic laughter. Baxter and Dayton were too spent to complain as their chains were unlocked, and they were forced, staggering through numerous cold puddles of muddy water, pushed along by the sinister robed figures of a score of unseen inhabitants. They were led almost unconsciously along these subterranean winding tunnels until they came out eventually into the open. Their bodies were weak and their spirits broken. It was evening as they emerged. The sun was sinking into an orange sea of clouds, tinting the surrounding tors with gold. Wisps of glistening mist hung in shreds above the marsh, like steam rising from a sulphurous pool. The two men registered little of this, they were some distance from the village at the edge of the marsh, and here they were thrust forward onto a huge flat slab of granite. Thin beards of stubble darkened both their jaws, while their eyes were rimmed and bloodshot. Neither had the strength to look up at the diminishing glory of the sunset. Roy Baxter began to mutter to himself, reciting the Lord's Prayer under his breath. Dayton's head lay against cold rock, he regarded his friend through pain-misted eyes. Beside him, the reeds trembled in the cool breeze. "'Roy! Roy!' he whispered hoarsely. The other turned to him, still praying. Above them, the captors were still. "'We're done. Do you understand?' "'Listen!' Far out over the marsh there came a gibbering of something nebulous, as though the mire itself were alive. The frogs had begun again, that heart-stopping croaking, a hundred thousand throats swelling the chorus. Dayton turned his head, forcing a look back at the village, framed between the arms of two of the gaunt figures in black. There were scores of similarly garbed people filing out of what he took to be the chapel, all with arms raised in supplication, all walking like jerky dolls towards the two outsiders and the marsh. To whom or what are they praying? Dayton asked himself, unable to credit his eyes. With a start of revulsion, he saw that there were a number of dogs, cats, and even a few sheep staring placidly out at the marsh. The spell on Penmire gripped even the animals. The chant swelled and the words became clear, though still incomprehensible. Over and over they repeated it. These were words not written for human mouths to speak. I must get out now. God knows what they'll do, thought Dayton. Roy! he whispered, Roy! But his friend had passed out over the altar-like stone. Dayton feigned the same, one eye on the chanting crowd. Those around had taken up the chant as well. Bloody mumbo-jumbo! All around the valley the sound of the frogs was growing in volume. Louder and louder it came, blending malefically with the ululations of the oncoming worshippers. 
From the marshes came a rising cloud of dense vapour, and with it the unbearable fish stench that Dayton had smelled so frequently. This time it seemed to pulse out from the marsh in disgusting waves, and he almost vomited. Now he could see the frogs. They hopped around the stone as if mocking him. The marshes were teeming with them. Dayton shook himself. Beside him his captors were kneeling, arms outstretched in obeisance to the very heart of the marsh. What did they expect to see? Dayton craned his neck and gasped. Bubbles were bursting all over the surface as if it were boiling. He fought to control his sanity as he realised that the chanting was attracting something out of that festering pool of horror. A movement beside him drew his attention back to his immediate dilemma. He turned to see some of these devilish acolytes stretching Roy, still unconscious, over the altar stone, preparing him for the very sacrifice he had feared. Dayton was stunned. No, they can't mean it. Not today. 1974. But they paid no attention to his torrents of invective. Dayton flung himself upon them with last reserves of energy, kicking, biting, hammering with his fists. But it was useless. He was flung contemptuously aside to roll pathetically into the reeds. Stark terror gripped him now. He got up, his movements ignored by the still-chanting villagers, and fled into the treacherous mire, desperately trying to find a way through the numerous bogs. He looked back as he panted on, only to see a curved knife glittering in the twilight with scarlet jewels raised high. This is madness! Madness! Dayton averted his gaze and felt his stomach heave, refusing to believe the knife would fall. But he heard it sink into Roy Baxter's flesh, and a shuddering, satisfied sigh went up from the villagers. Accept our sacrifice, O Dagong. Sna, sna, Tears of disbelief coursed in grimy runnels down Dayton's face. He shook his head in utter disgust at what they had done. Blood ran freely over the altar into the mud. Roy had died without a sound. Dayton fled farther into the marsh, hoping against hope to reach the tours before they came for him. But further diabolic events were unfolding. From even the farthest reaches of the marsh, the fish smell was at its most foul. A new element of horror was emerging. Unspeakable shapes were thrusting up out of the oozing mud and green scum. Shapes so dreadful, so appalling, that only in the wildest fantasies of a madman could they have been conceived. Dayton bit into his hand to stifle a shriek. The constant chanting was taking its effects, as had the spilling of blood, drawing these vile monstrosities up from the depths like enchanted snakes. They were half-human, half-fish, or so it looked. 
for their features were a repulsive blend of both, with fins protruding from each jowl and long plumed spines stretching right down their backs. There were gills in their man-like trunks, their eyes were the wide filmy eyes of fish, and their arms were long and thin, tapering to webbed claws. From these came the hellish smell. Dayton reached a boulder and leapt onto it, heart almost bursting with the effort. The mist was thickening, thankfully obscuring many of the beings, while the sun had set, leaving the world in rapidly gathering darkness. Dayton was surrounded by the fishmen, who still continued to rise from the muck like a legion from hell itself. As he stared in fascination, they began emitting croaking sounds of their own, frog-like and deep, until, with a shudder, Dayton realized that they were chanting in response to the people of Penmire. From thick, fleshy lips came the same dread words that the villagers were chanting, spoken, he saw, by the very ones to whom the language belonged. Although he was some way out in the marsh, none of the terrible people came near. They just waved and writhed gently from side to side, as though drugged. Arms raised in ecstasy, as were those of the villagers. Frogs jumped everywhere, their croaks adding to the swelling din. Dayton ached with weariness. There was not a muscle in his body that didn't crave rest, but he knew that he must keep on whilst the horde were preoccupied with their incantations. He sprang from the rock and zigzagged his faltering way through islands of turf, constantly sinking to his knees in clinging mud. He wanted to lie down and sleep, but dare not. The thought of that dripping knife gave him more will to go on. Still, the creatures were ignoring him, though he passed within feet of several, shutting everything out of his mind except the tors, and escape. Suddenly the ground heaved, pitching him forward into the gurgling slime, so that for terrifying seconds he crawled with cold reptilian frogs. Within moments he was knee-deep, jerking himself upright and yanking at his arms to get them free. They came out with great sucking sounds, but his feet were held. He beat frantically at the swarming frogs, feeling them squirming beneath him in multitudes. Dayton struggled in despair. He was trapped, and still the chanting went on, rising in volume, driving him ever closer to madness. Now the ground began rippling and pulsing like a great heart beating. A note of joy had entered into the chanting. Dayton heard, felt the sound from below. He could not put a name to it, not dared to do so. Excitement spurred the invocations around him, and he tried to twist and see what exactly the villagers were doing. Were they pursuing, or had they forgotten him in the midst of their insane revels? But he could not see. He was stuck, firmly, sinking inexorably to a gruesome death. Accept our second sacrifice, O Dagon. 
Dayton heard the words of the people behind and the terrible implication. He had escaped the knife, but the mire would take him. Unless, with a last vain effort, he stripped off his jacket, ready to throw it in front of him in one final attempt to heave himself out. Then he stopped, eyes wide in utter disbelief. Before him the marsh was heaving and thrashing like the cauldron of a volcano, sending great plumes of mud high into the mist. Dayton felt more tremors in the rumbling ground. The chanting had abruptly ceased, together with the croaking of the frogs, as all eyes, all arms had turned to the source of the disturbance. From out of the unknown depths of the mire, ringed by the evil-smelling fish creatures, something huge, something unutterably ancient was rising. Dayton screamed now, his whole body shaking uncontrollably, unable to free itself from the fatal clutches of the marsh. Higher and higher rose the mire-coated colossus, and worse grew the unholy stench of that unwholesome thing. For this was Dagon, Dagon the Ageless, summoned at last from an eternal sleep, summoned from the refuge he had sought untold aeons before, when he and all his kind were cursed upon earth. Up, up rose the towering horror, a throbbing, glistening mass of scaly, amorphous life, Waves of mud spilling over with frogs rippled out from the growing monster. A score of thick, oily, tentacle-like protuberances, coated and contracting suckers, whipped up from beneath the ooze in a welter of steaming filth as the titanic creature rose higher, exuding an aura of clinging vapours. Dayton coughed as he caught the first whiffs of the poisonous diffusion. He had sunk waist-deep before it, his eyes riveted on this thing from before the dawn of men. All around in the night the servants bowed down, eager to serve, smiting themselves and yelling out in exultation. Dagon of the deeps had come, come to begin a new reign. The earth shook constantly, hissing with escaping steam, and the mire overspilled its contaminated ooze out into the village. Dayton closed his eyes and prayed fervently, sinking lower, lower. Dagon stretched out his many arms to receive the sacrifice that his people had prepared. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You've tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So, that was A Horror Under Penmire by Adrian Cole, dating from about 1974. Adrian Christopher Sinnott Cole, born 22nd July in Plymouth, England, 
is still alive. He's known for his, for his Dream Lords trilogy, the Omeran Saga and the Star Requiem series, and his young adult novels, Moor Stones and the Sleep of Giants. He was born in Plymouth, as I said. His father was in the army. He spent three years with his family in Malaya when he was a young child before settling back in Devon. He became interested in fantasy and science fiction at an early age through Tarzan of the Apes, King Solomon's Mines, movies such as Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, great one, and comics such as the original classics illustrated War of the Worlds, as well as the works of Algernon Blackwood, Lovecraft, and Dennis Wheatley. You might have guessed a Lovecraft. He first read Lord of the Rings in the late 1960s while working in a public library in Birmingham and was inspired by the book to write an epic entitled The Barbarians, which was eventually revised into the Dream Lords trilogy, published in the early 1970s. He began writing various ghost horror and fantasy tales, which he sold to various anthologies. Um, the novel Madness Emerging had a distinctly Lovecraftian flavour, set in a small Cornish village, based on in one which he had lived for five years, so you can see that, overrun by an alien force. Um, he, the, the Sleep of Giants is set in Dartmoor, in, uh, they're in the southwest of England anyway, even if not Cornwall. So you see, um, Cole has worked as a librarian, an administrator in education, and director of resources in a large secondary college in the town of Biddeford North, Devon, where he lives with his wife Judy, son Sam, and daughter Katya in an old blacksmith's forge. Um, he um, He's still alive. Uh, so, yeah, very Lovecraftian, wasn't it? But, you know, and I thought this would have made a, a fantastic um, scenario for the um, Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, but, of course, it was it came out before Cthulhu did. Sorry, the dogs are having a bit of a rough and tumble on the floor, so you might hear some kind of sounds of violence. They're only playing, though. But I kicked them out while... Um, I kicked them out while I was recording that to go down and find they'd begun to eat a hole in the wall, which I wasn't very pleased about. Then I had to go out and see uh, Danny, uh, but we missed each other. And um, I was watching the racing from Kelso, and he was sitting in the, the back garden uh, of this pub uh, vaping, so I gave up and walked home. The dogs were pleased to see me, though. But um, I took him out for a long walk this morning, but I need to take him out again because obviously a bit rumbustious, rumbunctious at the moment, showing the teeth. And when they look at me, they kind of... I'm looking at them now, and then they look, and they're like, what, what? You know, as if, are we in trouble? You're not in trouble for this, but you are in trouble for eating a hole in the wall. Yeah. Oh, dear. So Sheila's away. If you uh, listen to my late night sleep radio podcast you'll know i'm gonna i've done an interview with sheila about her um uh, foraging and what she makes teas and soaps and tinctures and unctions uh and that that i've kind of previewed that to uh, my patreons and that's gone down quite well really i think people are yeah, people are interested in it and you might say well you know i think the audience the audience for the classic ghost stories podcast has got quite big now um i think we've had like millions of downloads 4.5 million uh, and um, they're going on for 37,000 subs on YouTube and um, about 15,000 listens a week on the podcast itself so that's amazing really I did a live reading last night of some of my stories and I'm tired today I'm doing another one tomorrow because this is a busy time for me really around Halloween and I'm going to do I've been doing lives on YouTube I can't do those on the podcast and um, 
if you go on YouTube on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast channel, you'll see I did a couple of stories from Richard Wells's book, Damnable Tales, Folk Horror Stories. And um, uh, that, you know, generally went down pretty well. The one before I did, I did one the week before. I can't remember what story I did now. But I'm going to be doing Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft on Halloween itself. That's Halloween 2023. So if you're late to the party, you'll still be able to see it um, as a recorded. They're distracting me, you see, as a recorded uh, live. So it will go out live, but it will be recorded. And you'll be able to watch it after the event. People talk about the sound. So the, the difference is, right now I'm sitting at my desk and I'm talking right into a really high quality microphone, which um, th the support of the people who support this this uh, show has enabled me to buy. Um, but when you're sitting in a chair reading from a book, it's it's not as possible to do that. So I use a, um, a, a what they call a shotgun microphone which is still pretty good and it's still okay, but it isn't never going to be studio quality. And I think the other thing is, and I'm on this um, thing is, do you know, I, I don't have a Netflix budget and I don't have a studio and I don't have a sound engineer and I don't have tons of equipment. It's just me in a room with fighting dogs at my feet. Uh, you can hear that thing now. Ruby's decided to chew my chair. Whereas Jasper, and I don't talk about him, he's usually a good boy. Uh, but I, he was, he was the one who ate the hole in the wall, and I know that because when I went down, he had white plaster on his nose, so the evidence was there. But yeah, so you know, cut me a bit of slack. Um, it, you know, it's it's I'm not, I'm not in Hollywood. Uh, this is I'm not even Joe Rogan, you know, and I don't have a studio, and so if it isn't perfect sound or perfect, then give me a break you know and um uh, i know most of you do in fact and i know i'll get lots of messages of support from this so i do totally know that but i think i wonder some people particularly kind of uh, who called them this randoms was it johnny depp called, you know randoms people who you don't know just pop in they're not they're not subscribers they're not um regular listeners and they just drop in and make a comment oh you know uh you sat and i'm like do you know what dude you're not even paying me a cent for this so you're not my boss i don't work for you anyway there you go funnily enough anyway i'm about to reveal the secret of somebody else who you may know another podcaster because i was talking to him about things like this and it's not for me to do that um i'm working too much really and i'm going to give up one of my, i'm going to give up one or two of my psychiatric nursing jobs i've got two part-time jobs i work them both two days a week but i do like tuesdays i work till 8 p.m wednesdays i just do a nine to five thursdays i work till 8 p.m and fridays i do a nine to five and i do you know i've run out of gas for it really so but i don't like to let people down so oh i hate i hate because i know the people who have my skills um, and this isn't bigging myself up, it's just a f fact. There's not many of us, so we're hard to get. So, But I don't want to do it anymore, it's too hard. So anyway, um, I'd rather sit and wrestle with the dogs. I'm going to take them out very shortly. I should be saying funny things, shouldn't I? My mum is back from hospital, she's doing well. They always think with elderly parents, oh dear, is this the end? But um, she's rallied round, she's really well. Um, Jasper, for some reason, is rolling on his back, itching his back, um, chewing his rope toy. Uh, 
it's hard to know what goes on in the mind of dogs, isn't it? We went for a walk this morning and there was cattle in the field, big field. And I was being like the tracker because I could see there was fresh cow dung. And I thought, oh, the, cow, and it, the cows are in the field. And we do walk through Rickaby Park in Carlisle and the cows are very docile there. We can walk right by them with the dogs that don't bother. But, you know, cows, cows, dogs and people don't necessarily get on. So I, I kept an eye out for them, but we were, we were okay. And I'm going to take him out for a walk. That's my preoccupation at the moment. Sheila's away in Barrow in Furness doing a psychic thing on stage. So she was a bit nervous about that this morning. But uh, And she had to get up at half past five. So, so, you know, I've been up since half past five. Or awake since half past five anyway. She made me a cup of coffee. That's nice. And um, uh, she's gone with her friend Sparkly Emma. <laughs> Sparkly Emma may listen to this and she go, oh yeah, but she knows she's called Sparkly Emma. So, um, so they're going down to do th this thing. Um, Sheila's performing. There we are. Let me think of something. Can I think of something funny and witty? Um, it's it's very lovely autumn weather here. It hasn't been raining for a couple of days, and um, the leaves are all, there's like heaps of leaves, and they're that they're a, a kind of a very light colour now. So it is really lovely. And uh, the next thing is Halloween, of course. I'll be doing the live thing, so I probably won't be, I won't be going out trick-and-treating. But in fact, to be fair, when a man of uh, 62 goes out trick-or-treating, people get suspicious. People are like, they don't like it. Knocking on your door. Trick or a trick. I remember once I was in a pub in uh, St. John's Wood. Talking, somebody last night asked me, uh, when I was doing the live reading, what inspires you and, and I, to, for stories. And I'm like, well, just bits and bobs. You know, you steal little incidents from your life and from other people's lives if they tell you them. And you put them together. You think, oh, that's interesting. I'll put that in. So in, I don't know if you've heard my story, um, Unreal City. You can find it, the audiobook version. I must say it is very well received. Uh, so go off and listen to that. And um, it's just good. Just if you just search on YouTube, you won't find it anywhere else. You may be, if, is it on Bandcamp? Anyway, YouTube will do, and um, you Unreal City, and you'll see there's a a um, there's a scene where the the um, the young heroine is going to meet the vi one of the villains, and it's a very foggy night in St John's Wood, and she walks back to the tube station. Well, this is actually drawn on an incident where me and my friend Rob Lloyd were in a pub, surprisingly there and it was a, such a, it was a halloween it was halloween it was a foggy halloween what we we're doing in st john's wood i think he may have lived near there at that time and these kids came in the pub and they were like trick or treat mister i don't know if they were proper cockneys trick or treat mister and i said oh go on i'll have a trick and uh, this kid said uh i haven't got any tricks so yeah so I bought him a pint instead. He was only 11. That's a joke. It's obviously illegal for me to buy alcohol for 11-year-olds, and I would never do it. Um, that strikes me, of course, the amount of time we uh, spend uh, making out that we're virtuous. And, uh, of course, we all are. But um, all of us fall at some times. Uh, and without getting too religious, I think that's one of the... Um, one of the in nice and... Uh, important things about Christianity is the realization that it's the absolute statement that we all of us are fallible 
just in case we get too big for our boots. And that doesn't mean I'm, you know, making a Christian point. I'm just saying in Christianity, that is, maybe other religions say that as well, but I'm most familiar with Christianity. And, uh, you know, J Jasper's rolling. You might knock the, don't knock the microphone. Why are you looking so mad? I mean, crazy mad. Oh, he's, I'm going to have to take him out for a walk. Anyway, so, yeah, no tricks. We've all got tricks. Yeah, but I mean, I was kind of saying, oh, yeah, so I, of course, is on, I wouldn't buy him a drink, blah, 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 because I have to convince you how virtuous I am. And we do that all the time, particularly online. It's like, oh, yes, I am pure. I am pure. I do not have a bad thought or a bad action. And then, of course, the corollary, whatever, however you say that, is, but you do. Because I'm pure and you are, you know, muck. And therefore, you know, I can say awful things to you. Uh, one of the reasons I, I kind of, I deleted my personal Twitter um, for that reason, because it was just, I never got involved in the arguments. I never saw the point in it. But, you know, people will just vehemently, vilely lambast each other um, in a way that you wouldn't do in real life, because you get a smack in the mouth. And as Mike Tyson says, um, you know, nothing stops you so much as a, uh, what was it? N yeah, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's absolutely right. So online, people can say the most vile things to other people that they wouldn't say in reality because they would get a punch in the mouth. And, um, you know, I'm not advocating violence. There you go. That's me being virtuous again. Um, but, you know, he's right. He's right. He's right. He's right. And you wouldn't, they wouldn't. And it's also in cars as well. I don't know if you notice. People are much ruder in their car than they are face to face. Um, everybody's, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, excuse me. Certainly around here. Um, and, uh, but in a car, they'll flip you the bird. They'll not, they don't do it to me because, of course, I'm virtuous. I don't do anything wrong. But, um, you know, and they do do that. And um, but they they wouldn't face to face, and that's why I grew up in a in a kind of rough town. Really, I don't think anybody from Workington would mind me saying that in the nineteen seventies, eighties, Workington was a rough town. And but it was immensely polite because if you were out in Workington, you you were immensely polite. If you knocked into somebody, if you um, spilled a drink you would immediately offer to buy one of course this is all good manners anyway but it was punctiliously observed and and then when i went to london it wasn't anywhere near as polite because um they don't they don't get punched in the mouth as much uh and uh, and of course i remember reading that um, the japanese are really polite people because a very and the, the english are supposed to be very violent people as well and i think if you crowd people into a small island as in both the cases of japan and certainly England, probably the UK, in fact, um, and all these islands, Ireland as well, uh, that, you know, you uh, you have to mind your manners because you're stepping on people's toes, literally, and it inculcates politeness. And because, you you know, and the Japanese are very polite, but of course we know that there's a very violent cult, uh, underculture, underculture, side culture, back culture to Japan. Do you know, I sometimes, you might not believe this, but I sometimes censor myself on this. I sometimes have a conversation with you, imaginary you, out there listening. Remember, I don't know you. And I spout off and I say things and I think, and then when I get about 15 minutes into it, I think, you can't say that. Um, and, and so I had a really funny story to tell you, but it was couched, it was, it was wrapped in darkness. So uh, I, I just... 
cut it. There we are. I don't know if you can hear these dogs. I've got nothing funny to tell you. Um, what funny thing happened to me on the way to the theatre? We're going out tomorrow. I'm doing another live reading tomorrow. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So last night I was doing this ghost story thing and everybody's listening with rapt attention and somebody's dog was in and I don't know if it was the thing but the dog started growling and so I'm reading this thing and it's going I'm trying to concentrate and I thought you know even if I kind of take a step aside and go excuse me can you shut your dog up um or that would have broken the thing that would have broken the the crescendo I was um, building towards so this dog uh, this dog just at, at the at the key moments when the, the suspense is there it's like, <laughs> you know, there we are so funny times funny times dogs are funny aren't they I um I'm trying I still my mission is to make my dogs friendly with the cats two doors down and Sheila tells me I mustn't do that because um somebody could get hurt and I think she means me uh, but the other day there was a tiger and he was sitting and sunning himself and he's an old tomcat and my two were there who were pups you know and uh, they didn't see him at first and he didn't move he wasn't bothered so I went to see him and I gave him and he came up for a stroke and I was having a nice time with him and the dogs came up and I was gonna I had some cheese for the dog so I gave him a bit of cheese and uh, and then he and they they came up and Ruby was like oh what kind of creature is this? Well, I said it's the kind of creature that leaves you little little presents under the soil, under the tree that you you eat unless I stop you eating them. It's lovely, delicious little treats. This mysterious creature. Um, that's what they're from him. A little present. But anyway, and, and so Ruby was like, oh, and her ears were up, and. Um, and, Jean, and Tiger decided to leave through the cat flap. So every time she goes out now, she goes to the cat flap. She didn't chase him. I think uh, that's a prey response, isn't it? If if the cat had run, she would have chased him or anybody. And she's terrible with runners. Jasper is as well. You know, if runners run by, they run after them. And I'm like, oh, no, if they're not on the lead. Anyway, so I, I realise this is all winding down to nothing. I probably should say something. The story itself, wasn't it? Um... It was, it, it was a fun story. It was a Call of Cthulhu um, scenario story. We made a great Call of Cthulhu scenario. Very classic. Very classic, even to the um, the Lovecraft language, you know, the Cthulhu chants, which I enjoy doing. I put them on a bit of reverb, so I don't usually mess around with the... the I used to do more so, but I don't usually mess around. Anyway, the, the gnawing is getting extremely frantic now. The, either the chair is going to collapse and I'm going to fall... Or um, they're just going to lose lose their minds, their dog minds. So I better take them out for a walk. Uh, I hope you're all right. I will be running on full steam next time. I'm just tired at the moment. Okay, hope you're well. Um, oh, yeah. Remember to go to my Etsy shop. I've got merch. I've got postcards. Remember, we couldn't sell the books across to the US because it's just really too heavy. But I, the postcards and the... I'm getting pins done, badges and I've got stickers and they can all go they're fine and they're not too expensive at all to, to ship over so uh, make I'm gonna I should really clap so I know where to put the Etsy thing when I'm doing it but anyway go to Etsy uh, classic ghost stories on Etsy um, Tony Walker classic ghost stories I think you just search for classic ghost stories get the podcast cast merch I send it out to you if you want a book if you're in the UK I'll send you a book and I'll sign it okay all right happy Halloween Oh, and another thing is, remember to tune in 
at 9 p.m. 2100 hours British time, which is about 4 p.m. East stand, you know, EST, isn't it? And a bit later on the west coast of the US. And if you're in Australia, it's something awful like uh, it's about 8 a.m. I think. Um, so yeah, but otherwise, if you want to hear um, the Rats in the Walls by H.B. Lovecraft, I'll be doing that live at 9 p.m. British time on Halloween itself. Uh, in Australia, it'll be the day after. See, I'm getting good at this. Anyway, okay, bye. The time calculations, you know. Y yeah, you knew.